All right. Welcome to the last question, episode number 11. Today, I've got a guest for you. Uh, I'm going to be talking to Krishnan Chatur. He's a recently retired university professor, chemical engineer by training, although he has uh, not only trained in, but um, ventured into several other branches of academic study, professional study, and is now chief technology officer at Gene Capture, a company that specializes in cutting edge medical diagnostics and detection. Uh, there are plenty more details to that, which we'll probably get into in the show. And if you're doing the math, yes, he's also my father. So I've got my dad for you this week. Um, wanted to talk to him for uh, a little while for the show. Maggie has suggested it also, you know, in, in terms of leadership, one of the things that leaders need to be able to do, and we've talked about this before, is ask difficult questions and ask questions where uh, you know as you ask it, no one's going to know the answer. But if anything, that makes the question all the more important because just, just because you don't know the answer in the moment doesn't mean it's not an answer worth finding. And so gene capture and the technology that my dad's company is working on fielding um, was born out of a question he asked and his colleagues, colleagues asked that really the medical establishment didn't have an answer for. Uh, I, have, I don't have the qualifications to do it justice, and so I'm going to spare you the details and let him explain it for himself. We'll probably get into his story, get into a bit of what I shared uh, in last week's show uh, leading up to Memorial Day, a bit of his story that leads into my story that leads into why I joined the military. So we'll get into that. We'll talk about Gene Capture, his experience now uh, in academia, and we'll see where the conversation goes. Um, if you've got any feedback, any questions at all, anything that you want me to know, good, bad, indifferent, email me, arun, A-R-U-N, at enableword.com. As always, I appreciate each and every one of you who's listening week to week, each and every one of you who has subscribed, uh, I genuinely am happy that you are here, that you're sticking with us, that you're sticking with this project. Um, the only thing I would ask is share the show with someone, with a friend of yours, a family member, someone you think might find value in what we're doing here. And that's all I've got for you. So without further ado, my dad. Okay, so welcome back. This is episode number 11. Um, we were just talking off air here for a couple of minutes. And uh, my dad, in fact, has not yet, by the time you listen to this, he probably will have, but he has not yet listened to episode 10 from last week leading up to Memorial Day. So uh, in a way, that's probably good um, because I'm going to ask him to tell that story, especially since he can tell it much better than I can. So first, thanks for hanging out with me course we're recording on a friday night and we're two hours separated so glad we were able to make this work and we'll yeah. see where the conversation goes um all right so like i was telling you before yeah. i started the last episode off with like a very 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 brief version of the you coming to the u.s in 1979 story right so but i think that's the best place to start okay is, what led you to that moment and, and why did you make that decision versus what maybe a lot of whether your other friends were doing, staying in country and getting jobs and living life in India? 
Yeah. Um, let, let me begin because I had always wanted to teach um, ever since I was small, even through high school. And, um, and so it was clear to me that, and I always wanted to you know, get an advanced degree. Um, I forgot, I forget when I decided it's going to be chemical engineering. Somewhere along the way I said, okay, I'm going to do chemical engineering. I think, um, I, I may have mentioned this to you also uh, and to mom, because when I was growing up, you know, my dad and mom only had a high school education, but they yeah. were very, very, um, you know, uh, serious about the kids getting uh, as good an education as they can give us. So they encouraged us to, you know, do well, you know, uh, go as far as uh, we needed to. And so we got into some good schools uh, for the high school stuff. And then um, um, I decided to take an entrance exam for the IIT. Um, I may mention this. Uh, well, so that is a nation, sorry. Well, so as you, as you explain that, right, most everybody right. probably won't know what IIT means yeah. in the, context, uh, right? Yeah, in the, in, in this was, not, I took the exam in 1973, approximately. So there were five um, institutes, they were called the Indian Institute of Technology. In, uh, and there were five in India at that time. Today, there are more. And there was one in, in Bombay, New Delhi, and then Madras, and Karakpur, and Kanpur. And admission to them was uh, highly selective. And you had to take a national entrance exam, as it were. And you had to score high in that exam before you could get admitted. I did well, and I got into the chemical engineering program in IIT Bombay. So it was a five-year program at that time. And, you know, I was happy. Uh, it was a wonderful experience. Um, and then sometime, you know, maybe the third or the fourth year, I said, you know, I want to teach engineering. And by that time, I sort of knew the higher education system in the United States was, you know, very, very, very good. And so I sort of set as an objective, you know, I, you know, want to go to university in the United States. Where, it wasn't clear to me. I, I applied to many, many places. Um, but I had to have a scholarship before I could um, go there because my parents could afford to send me to the United States. So, um, but, so I applied to several places and Rice University came through with a, a fellowship, um, a graduate student fellowship. And uh, I was happy to accept. And um, Meaning you're gonna be paid to be a student did Correct. you have teaching responsibility, research responsibility, or the expectation was just study and maintain a GPA? Um, well, study and maintain GPA, of course, but the, the, um, at Rice, for example, every graduate student was expected to teach slash, you know, teaching assistant, grading or something. Everybody was expected to do that. So that is part okay. of something I did for the first year. I assisted in grading a class for a professor, for a couple of professors, for a couple of semesters. And then at the end of the first year, um, I was, um, oh, sorry, at the beginning of the second semester, we had to make our choices as to who, which professor we wanted to work with in the department for uh, leading to the PhD. And so what you do is you sort of, um, you write your choices, you know, Professor A, Professor B, first choice, second choice, third choice. And then the department faculty meet and then they sort of um, make sort of, I mean, they try to give you your first choice, of course. Yeah. Uh, if it's if, not- If that other. faculty member is good with it though. 
Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, they have veto power, I would imagine. Right. Um, so anyway, I was happy to get my first choice working with my advisor, uh, Larry McIntyre. And um, he was working in, uh, uh, I, he was a chemical engineer, but working in biomedical engineering, as it were. And so, um, and his um, project had to do with understanding what happens to um, uh, T lymphocytes uh, when they're in, in a mechanical shear field, as it were. So that was challenging because I knew almost nothing about immunology or T cells or all that. So I, I was happy to um, be assigned to McIntyre and- Okay, so I, the biomedical theme goes all the way back to grad school. It didn't right. start, okay. Right, so the biomedical theme. Okay. And I actually, um, and then, you know, it is, it's a great um, learning process because as, as soon as I got that project, I said, okay, I need to take a class in biochemistry, which I did at Rice University, which was the first biology class ever, bio class ever. And that was the hardest class I ever took in my life. Since high school, you mean? Oh, yeah. Since high school. I had never taken a biology class in high school or even in IIT. It was just nothing. So my very okay. first bio class was at Rice University, a graduate class in biochemistry. I mean, it was the most challenging class I'd ever taken. Um, but it was necessary for, for the work I was going to do as yeah. my graduate work. So anyway, um, I managed, I got a passing grade, <laughs> not my uh, highest grade uh, in any of my classes, but I did well in that class and learned from it. Um, and then started my research program with McIntyre. Um, and then uh, along the way I said, hmm, I need to learn some immunology. So I went to the medical school, University of Texas Medical Center and took a um, class in immunology with the medical students at that time, uh, which was surprising, not as challenging as the biochemistry class at Rice. So, but it was helpful, it was useful because I learned about immunology and stuff. So this is, so let me ask real quick, this is the early yeah. 80s. Right. So I know when I was looking at grad school program. Uh, mid, mid, seven, uh, mid uh, late 70s, I don't know. Yeah, 70. Um, sorry, you're, you're right. Oh, you're right. Early 80s. I'm Early sorry. 80s, right. Yeah. 80, 80 correct. or 80. Yeah. Correct. Correct. So, 80, yeah. so when, when I was talking to, to folks on campus at OSU and I talked yeah. to doctoral programs, right. For them, it's a given that students and PhD programs are going to be taking courses all over campus. Was this normal then, or was it strange for the medical school to see a chem, a chemical engineer walk into the building asking to take a class? Uh, I would say it was in the case. It was, it's not, it was not um, usual. I mean, I may have been the only non-medical student in that class. Um, so, but I would say that it is not as uh, usual as it is today to see students from different disciplines taking biology or engineering. Uh, but uh, I, I, I decided because it was something I, I needed to uh, understand about before I could do my research. So yeah, it was a bit unusual, I would say. Um, and but you know, but the um, Rice and UT had an agreement, so the process was simple. I just registered for the class. I got the grade on Rice, so it was you know, it was straightforward. Okay, yeah, transfer credit type of thing. Oh yeah. So I took that, and then I then I took uh, several other classes uh, as just audit, sitting in at Baylor College of Medicine and so forth. And then one key thing that happened is that I then um, 
I said, okay, I needed to do some experiments using what's called T lymphocytes at that time. And which, which is what? So for the layman, okay. for the, the layman, right? Yeah. Um, you know, um, with the immune system, there are these things called B cells and T cells. The B cells are the one that makes the antibodies and the T cells are what they're, they, this called, uh, they have the T helper cells, T suppressor cells and killer cells and so forth. Um, and um, so there are, there are many more cells, of course, I'm just simplifying that. Two types of immune cells, okay. T cells and B cells. And I was gonna work with T cells. So I had to learn how to isolate them from a blood. So I learned how to draw blood from uh, other graduate students and volunteers because we took, yeah, I mean this, yeah. I, I yeah, well, this is like that. psych undergrads getting paid 50 <laughs> bucks for it. This is, yeah. when you go to college, you don't understand, you're just gonna be a guinea pig for however long you're willing to stay right. there. Yeah, okay. T uh, today, some of science. those, um, Today, some of those regulations are far more strict. I yeah, don't think yeah. graduate students will be allowed to do it. Anyways, but as I learned how to do that, and I learned how to isolate the cells I needed using a, what's called a gradient separation method. I learned that. And then I, I was fortunate because I landed up working in a, a department of immunology at the Baylor College of Medicine. Uh, there was a faculty member named Robert Rich, um, he was a Howard Hughes Institute uh, fellow, and he was kind enough to allow this, you know, green chemical engineer who knows nothing about cell culture or T cells or B cells into the lab. And so I did all of my experiments in that lab, the ninth, ninth floor of the DeBakey building, as it used to be called then. Okay. Um, Is the building still there? As far as I know, yeah. Okay. There are many oh. more buildings around it. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So I did all of my experiments over there. And of course, my used to meet regularly with my committee, tell them what was going on and, and all that. So that is an amazing experience because I was this strange engineer sitting and working in a lab full of immunologists and biologists. And, and they were all very kind to me and um, teaching me how to culture, how to, you know, uh, essentially what I had to learn was how do you look for what happens to T cells when they're stimulated I learned something called flow cytometry. They were kind enough to allow me to operate the instrument. So it was, it's a great, it is fantastic. It was just an amazing um, uh, time that I spent maybe about three years over there. Um, okay, so that's the majority of your time right. in grad school, right? So did you, so that was all data, that was all stuff, prep work you were doing to take back to Larry McIntyre's lab and his project? Yeah, but it was, you know, he was aware of it, you know, essentially keep him up, updated. Well, yeah, time. right. But you, you right. didn't finish out, like you weren't completing dissertation research and in that laboratory, you still had to go back. Of course. You had more coursework to finish or you were just right. in, okay. Yeah, a few more, a few more coursework. But at that time, for example, I essentially um, finished all my coursework, I would say in two years, maybe a little less. Okay. And so that is the whole point. I finish all your coursework and then essentially um, nothing but research work on yeah, the station. So yeah. that is kind of fun. Okay. So um, in fact, this is where, um, uh, as I don't know if you mentioned this or not, but I met mom and uh, she was working at Rice University for Larry McIntyre. <laughs> so, okay. So yeah. Yeah. So elaborate on that because I got that yeah. wrong and I think I always get this wrong. I always, I always think she worked mm -hmm. in the department office, in the Kami department office, but that's or is that the case. She did, but uh, Larry was the uh, chairman at that time. So oh, she okay. essentially worked for Larry McIntyre. 
Okay. So, um, so anyway, so that's when I first met her. She started, I forget, maybe 1980, I think, or 81. Forget when so just walking into the office looking for him? Yeah. I said, oh, um, it, we had a, uh, the previous administrative assistant retired, I think, or left. I forget why. So she got, so she was working there. So, um, so that's how we first met. Okay. Um, so anyway, so um, that was maybe 81 stuff. Um, then of course we got married in 82, December, um, in so, that Episcopal okay. church across Main Street at, on, on uh, across the Rice campus on Main Street. It's still there, that church, by the way. <laughs> so that first meeting didn't go poorly? No, no. 81 didn't. to 82 is not too long, okay. No, and so, you know, we got to meet, um, spend time with each other, we, we liked each other and so forth. And I met then I'm, uh, her sister, Isabel, and um, then I met um, her um, mom and dad, your puppy and, and, and grandma, yep. and uh, extended family and so forth. And then, um, so we got married in 82, before I finished my dissertation, so, uh, 82 December. So, um, the reason I'm mentioning that is because, um, I wanted to add one more interesting tidbit. So, so I was working on my uh, dissertation experiments and, you know, getting data analysis and stuff. Of course, and the time came to write the dissertation. Yeah. This um, I remember. She typed it for me on an Apple two, <laughs> on an Apple two in the medical center. Now, I'm mentioning that is because in those days, the Apple II was already available. It was still expensive, but it had just come out. The Mac was, Mac was very early, 84 around Mac showed up. Okay. So um, we had to go um, find an Apple II somewhere that we could use to type up the uh, dissertation. From handwritten I, notes? Yeah, essentially. If you had longhand. At longhand, wrote stuff in there. And then she typed it all. And I used to store the results on a five and a quarter inch floppy. Yep. And, you know, much to my chagrin, I can't find them today. I wish I had found where they were. Um, so she typed them on, a, on the five and a quarter inch floppy. And we spent several evenings in the medical center because they had a nice um, system and they allowed me to use it. That we used to, uh, for dinner, just go to the hospital cafe or something, eat dinner. Right? So that was an interesting time where the, there was, I mean, there was internet, but it's, you know, not like today, of course. Um, well, you so weren't I, emailing files back and no, forth to yourself from the late No, night. it just did not exist. Um, I did not have an email when I was at uh, Rice. I think email did exist. Uh, something called BitNet existed at that time. But I did not, and so okay. so all of my files were on floppies or something like that, all you know, printed. And um, the other reason we were at the medical center was the medical center had what's called a daisy wheel printer. You know, most of the printers were laser printers were not very common then. Yeah. So the most of the printers were what's called dot matrix. Mm -hmm. You know, you might see the airports. The holes on the side, and it's right. Yeah. Right. But um, the medical center, Texas Medical Center, had what's called a daisy wheel printer. So it had a very nice looking output. Um, so we used that for 
my final printout over there. Um, so you're but, also printing the final copy. Right. Whereas now we're just emailing a file. The committee is looking at it all electronic. And then you can print them in multiple ways inexpensively. I mean, the transition was, uh, it, it was, um, I mean, it was, it is not, I, I don't want to make it look like it's impossible, but, you know, uh, computer resources were not as um, easily available yeah. as they are today. Uh, and anyway, and then I had a lot of uh, graphs, you know, data plotting and stuff like that. Yep. And then, um, so, I mean, today nobody thinks about it. There are all kinds of programs. I use it all the time to create plots. And those days, um, there were a few, but they were expensive um, uh, programs. So I wrote code in what's called HPGL to create my graphs that are in my dissertation today. Essentially, in, I mean, it's, it's a... So to create print-worthy charts, right? you had to program them manually. Essentially, that's what I did. And then how did you splice them into text or was it all appendix or attachments or what? Well, I printed now, them and I had to manually um, put them together. So this figure went on page 35, you know, so it was, there was a lot of um, attention had to be paid to assembling the final dissertation. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that, but again, she typed almost all of it. My mom typed almost all of it. Um, and with the final copy. Uh, and then of course, um, making multiple copies was okay. It was, you know, Xeroxing was available then. You could, so, okay, yeah, you could photocopy, okay. Yeah, photocopy Yeah, but still was, she basically wrote the, the oh, yeah. thing. She essentially typed, it typed out the whole thing. And she was a okay. very fast, very accurate <laughs> typist. And it was just a question of me keeping up with the writing. And of course the, uh, once the, um, dissertation was typed, you know, give it to the committee and to my advisor. And if they had any changes, we had to go back and make the changes, of course. So, but um, yeah, that was not impossible, but it still took some time. So, yeah, I think, um, so it was an uh, interesting um, time to uh, develop the document and, and uh, present it. And of course, for the, um, dissertation defense, I, I press slides, but that I mean 35 millimeter slides. <laughs> so, um, not, no, maybe I use transparencies, I forget. For, you know, to, to defend your work, you gotta go in front yeah. of the committee and put something up on a screen. I can picture 35 millimeter, the little, yeah, like white yeah. bordered little slide thing, but. Right. But I may have used transparencies and I wish I don't remember now. Okay. I should remember. So let me, so. Yeah. Um, okay. So a question about mom and about yeah. the relationship as it, as it developed from 81 to 82. Right. Uh, and you can, and you can choose not to answer this or go into this, but talk about what, if any stress or what, if any, uh, what's the right word resistance you guys experienced. So, uh, so another thing that I mentioned in last week's yeah. show uh -huh. is, this is one of the few places on earth, I think, where an Indian grad student and a Cuban refugee from a communist <laughs> revolution can get married and create a kid. Right. Um, so, so, what, so what type of dynamic did that create among your friends, her friends, her, her family is in, the, this is the Houston area, right? So right. she's right next door, metaphorically, to her parents. Right. Your parents are half a world away. 
Well, the, the most interesting dynamic was not really with uh, your mom's parents or sisters and extended family or really anybody in Houston. The most interesting dynamic was with my parents back in India because they were sort of taken aback saying, wait a minute, you know. Um, in fact, uh, I, I don't know if I mentioned this to you or not, but before we got married, the summer of um, 82, I went to India to tell my parents that I'm going to get married. And I told them about Eliana, your mom, and, and uh, they were not happy. I mean, and so it was um, because they had, you know, it, then and even today to an extent, arranged marriages are sort of uh, assumed that the parents will find a, a wife or a husband and, you know, that's the kid will just say, okay. And uh, I had a lot of friends who just went back to India to get married and came back. And with that, with their spouse, with right. their wife. Right. So how, and, cause I think it's, I think a lot of people have heard about it yeah. and it's maybe a stereotypical thing. How widespread is it now? Or how uh, widespread I, was it then? And then now I would say very widespread then very, now, I don't have the statistics in front of me, and I don't know what the well, numbers yeah. are, but very widespread. It was, I, let, let me put it this way. I was um, unusual in not doing what a lot of the Indian students did, you know, at least some of the people I knew. Indian and students around you in the U.S., you mean? Some of them that I knew, and then elsewhere in the country, okay. they followed the conventions and what was expected of them, and I did not. So Fine. that did cause some, a lot of stress, frankly, for your mom and because she felt that she was not, uh, quote unquote, accepted. And I mean, yeah, it was challenging. Um, I tried my best to uh, allay her fears about me and everybody else. And, but she had a hard time with it because she said, why are they not, you know, why are they judging me like that without even knowing who I, who I am? So, but anyway, to, 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 to again, to um, make a long story short, we did visit India. Uh, in fact, you were very young then. It was, um, when was it? Is it uh, 91? No, 92, I think. Your first trip. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't remember the year. You don't remember I... that. But we visited India. Yeah, we had grade. a very nice visit, you know, mm -hmm. and then we visited once more after that. So I think, you know, um, when your mom died, my parents were devastated, you know. So when mom passed away, it was just, so they offered prayers at local temples and they, you know, food to people. I mean, they were just totally devastated. So I guess it didn't begin very well, but it calmed down. And yeah, you may not remember this either, but they did visit, my parents visited us and, Huntsville. You remember that? I, I don't remember Huntsville. I remember Ohio. Um, Cleveland. They visited us in Huntsville. Um, but they were bored out of their mind because not much to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you, you know? couldn't walk. You couldn't just walk anywhere. Right. We right. So basically a suburb. And, yeah. And they visited us in, in Ohio and stuff. So it turned out to be okay later, but but yeah, it was stressful. It was very difficult for your mom. And I tried my best, but because, you know, I was not treated the way, that is, I was not 
people didn't respond to me from her side as my parents did to her initially. So that was sort of, you know. How did, her, how did that side of the family respond to you? They were fine. And I remember meeting um, mom's sister, Isabel, and her kids, and Louis at that time. And I remember, um, did I met, meet her, your grandpa and grandma? I don't remember when I met them, but they were fine. They were very welcoming. And, and uh, I felt very much at home. So, so none of it, so whatever resistance there might've been would have been the standard. Is he right for you? Is he going to take care of you? Essentially. Is he secretly an asshole? It has nothing to do with right from this other place and it's totally weird. And right. No, I, at least I didn't feel that. I don't know. You know, I, you may have to ask them, but I never felt that it was only a question of, you know, is this guy a good guy? And you know, that kind of stuff. And it was clear to them that I was. <laughs> so, but. so why did you why did you break that norm? When when most of your peers yeah. weren't doing that, they were doing the traditional taking the traditional route. Why didn't you? Well, that's uh, I'm not sure how to answer that question because I maybe I was never conventional because I was always a contrarian. I still am. I like to think for myself, and you know, I mean, I didn't deliberately say. When I left India, I'm going to do this. I did not. It's, you know, it's just one of those things. You meet somebody, fall in love, and it's like, okay, this is it. That is, I do not think that this is the wrong thing to do. And I also do not think that that's what I was going to do. It's like, I mean, um, I because I, I, I still do that today. My core philosophy is to evaluate people as individuals, not necessarily part of some group or something. And so, you know, she was an extraordinarily intelligent human being. And I was impressed as to, I mean, the, I, I, I may have mentioned this to you. I mean, she could speak French and uh, Spanish without an accent. Mm-hmm. And then she had a, a breadth of uh, knowledge, which is just astonishing. She was very intelligent. You know, I found that enormously attractive. It's like, wow, you know, this is a force to contend with. So yeah. well, to me, she that was, was. And she was yeah. a chemist, if I remember correctly, right? She was yep. a training yep. and Correct. strong in mathematics. Yeah, and she uh, did medical technology. Ne- neither yeah. of which are genes that I inherited, but I remember <laughs> that from, from school, from homework, right. from... <laughs> talking with her and, and realizing quickly right. that I could talk I through mean, all these problems with her. She was a smart yeah. person. I mean, and the fact, of course the, um, I mean, I knew that she was from Cuba and born in Cuba and her dad had gone through all that difficulty. I knew all that, you know, over time, but I mean, she was a force um, in part because of how they were treated when they first came from Cuba too. That's a um, story that you may have heard a little bit, but I mean, they went. I know nothing really, about that. They really went through hell when they first. Remember, her um, dad came first, if I'm not mistaken, with uh, Isabel and your mom. And then I forget. And then maybe her mom came later. So they had a lot of difficulty in, you know, staying in apartments. They were not treated well uh, in the as US. Cubans in the United States. Yeah. Right. Um, in fact, one story she told me I remember was 
there was this, uh, she was a top in some French class, I think, or some other class. And she was going to get an award and some student complained about it saying, you know, how, how could he give this to a immigrant or somebody who just came on a board or something. So an award was taken away from her, even though she was the top in the class. So that really, I, that. I know that rankled her to no end. And so there were many things like that about uh, how people treated her dad. Because remember, he, when he, he was practicing in Cuba, mm -hmm. but um, he did not have the license in the, to practice in the United States. So he had to go through all that exams and how long do you know how long so for listeners who don't know he was yeah. a practicing physician but how long was he practicing prior to leaving i you know i, I don't remember i have no idea I, okay i don't remember um okay. i wish i knew the details but all i didn't know that he was working as a technician as he was studying for his exam to and the boards um yeah to license and, in florida right, and then became a pathologist um I can tell you one thing that I heard from uh, several people about his, apparently he was the best person to draw blood from patients. Apparently he was that good. <laughs> that is, he could find the veins. The, the best, oh, not, not yeah. dig around? No, yeah. He, yeah he, to so this day, he, that's the thing. Some, that, some difficulty, they said, hey, God. call Roberto. And boom, he used to go. <laughs> so, but yeah, so they were, they had a hard time initially as immigrants. They were not welcomed. They were not treated very well, but they found the footing very, very quickly. And uh, mom, of course, excelled in school and all that. And so, you know, so all of that was good. But um, yeah, yeah, it's, um, it was, um, it was not easy for them. And then later, of course, you know, her dad worked as a physician and they were okay when he retired. It's not easy. I mean, they just. Yeah. So they ended up landing on their two feet. He practiced in Florida, in Hollywood, yeah. right? Hollywood, and then retired. Florida. And then they moved to Texas, right? To be closer to. Correct. Their yeah. daughters. Okay. Right. So, uh, okay. So the contrarian is what it comes down to. Why you, exactly. why you didn't fit the mold. So what, what eventually led my, what eventually led your parents to warming up to her? Well, yeah. Again, that's a question is hard to answer, but I suspect that, you know, um, they said, well, you know, there's nothing we can do to change his mind about anything. He's in the United States, he's working, he's doing well. He seems to be happy. So this just slowly came around. I mean- so he just said, well, there's nothing we can do about it. I don't know. You know, that's a hard question to <laughs> no, answer. Just fuck it, fine. Why people change, I don't know, to yeah. be honest, I don't know. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, I was not going to leave her or do anything. It's just not going to happen. So, um, yeah, okay. and you know, it, it is. So they said, okay, <laughs> maybe, I don't know. So, yeah. okay. So then, so then to get back onto the timeline, what, yeah. what was, well, I'm sorry. So, yeah, it's okay. Cause I want to understand, yeah. you know, how, how things evolve and then, what ultimately convinces you that the right answer is the right answer. One of the other things that I've talked about before on the show, right? You've heard it. Other mm -hmm. folks that have listened to this have heard it. I talk a lot about the military transition experience and how difficult right. that was and is. Uh -huh. So go back for a, for a minute to you yeah. making the decision to apply and go to school in the U S what was okay. the plan originally, assuming you got admitted 
was the plan going into it, earn your PhD and go back? Or did you always know you were going to stay? Um, I've, I've, I'm going to say that at, the, at that time, I had imagined that I'll get my PhD and go back. Um, and if I'm what? not mistaken, I'm trying to, it's such a long time. And it is also sort of a precondition to get the visa to come to the United States. You know, uh, they wanted the student to, uh, they wanted some assurance that the student will get the degree and come back to the country. And so I thought, you know, I'll just go back to one of the institutes and teach over there. So yeah, I, I think if I'm not mistaken, I thought I'll get my degree and do some research and come back. Okay. But you know, it's, I, it's sort of fuzzy in terms of, I don't remember the specifics except, yeah. I, you know, I needed to get my advanced degree. I wanted to study and I wanted to do research. So this is probably, this is another detail I think I got wrong. So once you decided to stay in the U.S., what did you owe? Did you owe something back to the Indian government or to India or to a, a grantor of funds? Like what did you owe? No, no. Um, okay, let me, there are two things actually in that stuff. One is um, when I came to the United States, um, I had, I, I actually had a, a loan from a, um, company called Tata, it was a Tata endowment for something. And they provided some money as a loan for, that I used in India to buy some clothes and some other necessities to get ready for transport to the United States. That I had to pay back. It was after I get a job. Because uh, you stayed or just because it's a no, loan you it had was, to pay back? I had to pay back, it, okay. which okay. I did fairly quick. It wasn't a lot of money then. Um, well, both in relative and absolute terms. So I did that. And I actually got a um, scholarship for a one-way ticket from India that I didn't have to pay back. So my parents didn't have to foot the money because, uh, in fact, I'll tell you, it is interesting because it is uh, approximately a $1,000 one-way ticket from Mumbai to Bombay to uh, Houston, Texas. In 1979 dollars. 1979. By the way, inflation assisted, uh, inflation adjusted terms. Today, that ticket is almost 50% cheaper, but we can talk about this specific later. Is it real? And okay, that's not what it, I was expecting. In those right. days, it was eight rupees to a dollar. So the ticket was 8,000 rupees. So $1,000 approximately. Okay. So so I had a scholarship for that. So my, I, didn't, I or my uh, parents didn't know how to pay that back. So, but no. Um, you know, the IIT, the tuition was almost nothing. And uh, so the Indian government essentially, uh, I would say paid for my education, but there was no requirement for me to pay anything back as it were. So uh, then, so yeah. Well, so you talked about the visa, what, right. the assurance, and you didn't make good on that assurance. So what, what happens after that? Or did nothing happen? Nothing. It's I mean, just attrition. You know, because after I, you know, uh, met mom and I got the job and I, uh, became a citizen. It's, you know, then it's, it's not like uh, a firm stuff, like, you know, uh, something that said, if you don't do this, you have to go back. So it's not like that. Right. That was on what's called F1 visa. And mom was already a citizen. So I became a, natu um, a permanent resident. And then several years later, I became a citizen. And then, you know, and, and this, this happens quite a bit. So, but let me answer your question in a different way. Um, there was a lot of talk then 
about how, why is the Indian government educating all these kids and then after the education, they leave and go to the United States. They call it the brain drain and all that stuff. You mean, why do they leave India? Why they, right, why do they leave yeah. India? Yeah. And so the, the simple answer to that as well, you know, it's yeah, um, the students will go wherever they have good opportunity. And, um, and so why should you stop them? Um, and of course, when you look back, that's interesting history in, a, in, a, in, in its own uh, right. And uh, if you take a look at Silicon Valley, if you take a look at many places in the United States, the many of the countries were seeded by uh, graduates from the IIT. Um, and so they came here, they're like me, they decided to stay back, start companies, you know, uh, or teach somewhere and stuff like that. And so they have contributed, of course, to the economy of the United States, but also indirectly the economy of India, because by you know going back and uh, helping India in both direct and indirect manner too. So um, you know talent can talent should be able to flow freely, uh, in my opinion. So, so um, I've been I've been thinking. Yeah, you were talking. I've been debating whether to ask this question, but I'm gonna I'm just gonna ask this question. Go ahead. We'll uh -huh. see where it goes. Okay. Because as, as you talk about, so, so what, what was the discourse like in the U.S. or did, or was there any type of conversation? We have so many graduate students coming in from a particular part of the country. And so I asked this, right, because right now it seems there's a conversation about how many Chinese nationals we have in the U.S. in the higher education system. Right. And the one argument is, well, in theory, our higher, our, our higher ed system is still the best. Right. Which we'll get to whether or not that's, that's arguable, but okay. then, right. There's another subset of Americans that are arguing that this is really just the Chinese getting as much, not just education and training, but intellectual property. And it's really for malicious intent. So I'm curious one, if that was an issue back then, if Americans were afraid or if, if the academies were afraid of that. And number two, is the conversation we're having, is the fear that some people have of all these Chinese nationals on university campuses overblown? It just happens to be right now the trend is the Chinese see this place as the best place to go. Well, there are several issues. Let me kind of back up a little bit about um, Indian graduate students at that time. The, the one uh, reality um, in those days, and maybe to an extent even today, is that a very, very few American students or students have gone to undergraduate engineering schools in the United States want to go to graduate school to do research. That was the case then. That is, there were many, many graduate programs who could not find enough students to do research at that time. And so it was natural for, the, for these programs to look anywhere for students who could handle the graduate um, programs in the United States. So, so in one sense, the graduate programs were asking the question, we just want the good students. And it turned out in those days, they were from, you know, India, a lot of India, of course, and that's also true of China. So the simple explanation as well, we want, um, if you want a good graduate program, if you want to do good research, find the best student. They could be from the United States or they could be from other countries. And so the United States higher education and research system was built and it's uh, flourished for such a long time 
because the best students from all over the world wanted to come here and they were encouraged and they were, you know, welcomed. And I mean, I, I can't tell you, Rice was a fantastic place. You know, they didn't care I was from India. It's like, okay, because it was engineering, you know, it was math or science, whatever. And, and I could do research and I did the research and stuff. That's all they cared about. And so um, the same thing happened with Chinese students too. Now you mentioning one thing about, there is a, a very, very big difference of course, between India and China. And you know, we may not want to go down that tangent right now, but the reality is that I don't think the um, people in the United States ever felt that the Indian graduate students were, you know, you know, just coming here to steal technology and go back. Um, that they were going to contribute. I mean, the number of people who have contributed to the U.S. economy is incredible. Uh, that is an amazing list. Um, but there is that feeling about Chinese students, and in fact, you see stories about, you know, Chinese students sometimes coming and taking and maybe stealing IP. But again, we need to be cautious about that. I, 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 you will also see um, amazing Chinese students have come here, uh, become citizens and are doing astonishing research in the United States. Um, uh, children of Chinese immigrants, for example, are doing amazing work in the United States. So we need to be careful about a broad brush about saying, uh, you know, if you admit too many Chinese, it's gonna be a problem. Though, yeah, I've seen stories about that too, about stealing of IP and stuff. So it's it's How? not it's complicated, right? But to assume that 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 those news stories are representative of the entire Chinese immigrant population would be wrong. Is probably a bad idea. Yeah, I think okay. so. Yeah, I think so. All right, I'll so take that. let's put it that way. I mean, I've had Chinese graduate students. Yeah, when oh, I was yeah. at uh, University of Alabama Huntsville, and there was I remember one particular student uh, I had. I mean, he could barely write in English, but as far as when it came to the quantitative subject matter, he was the top in the class. I mean, he was, it's fantastic. And now I don't know where he is now, but so Graduated. yeah, we had to be careful about generalization. Yeah. I mean, there, there could be okay. some, um, there are cases of Indian students doing the wrong things. So let's not count that out either. So, so I'd just be careful about a broad brush. Yeah, okay, that's fair. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's get back to yeah. 1982, 83, 84. What right. was the plan? So we, so you, you traveled to India, you, you went to India and back, right. told your parents, you're getting married. Right. You met right. this woman, stuff's happening. Looks right. as though you're staying in the U S right now. What's the plan? You, you're going to graduate. You're going to make it. You're going to be a right. PhD chemical engineer. Look for a job. You know what job? Uh, what kind of? Well, good question. I, when I graduated, I really wanted an academic job right away, and okay. I left Rice University. But I was unable to find one at that time. Um, I think at that time I did not have enough publications, and I did not have a good track record of beyond the PhD work, or even with the PhD work that I, I just could not find an academic job. And so I was fortunate enough to find a job with Battelle in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, it, was, um, it was interesting because they hired me for a job uh, for doing something called spectroscopy and I had never done spectroscopy. And I also say this uh, as a story to lots of people because they hired me not because they knew I could do spectroscopy, 
but they, when I gave the seminar and they said, you know, defend the work that I did, what they were able to see was that I could think about a problem, explain it, and why we did what we did and all that. So they looked at the analytical capabilities that I had and explained the problem as part of my graduate work. They said, okay, it's great, we'll hire you, but guess what, you're going to do spectroscopy. I said, okay, I'll do spectroscopy. But did you apply, so you applied to a position? Yes. Knowing it was for us, in theory, a skill set or a task you'd never done? Pretty much. Okay. I sort of knew a little bit about the stuff in there. And I said, and I told them, I said, I haven't done this sort of work before. They said, okay, you know, but they were sort of um, confident that, you know, I could do what is necessary to pick up water stuff and then apply my skills to solve the problem, which I did. Um, so I was there for about six years. And in that time, actually, I landed and applied for NIH grant that I got, um, which also led me to the faculty position at University of Alabama Huntsville. So right. I, I spent a year in Cleveland, case was so. Yeah, which was academic in nature, right? right? It just wasn't permanent. Right. Yeah, that landed up with a paper we published um, based on the work at uh, Case Western. I was there for about a year. So why, so why was academia always, why not industry first? Uh, again, I, 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 don't, I remember even going through high school and stuff. I used to enjoy this. Um, you know, the, the, my friends used to come to me for help in a math or chemistry or whatever. And I used to help teach them. You know, whatever I could. In fact, I remember um, ex exam time a few weeks before exam, everybody used to come to our flat in Varala in Bombay. And they used to, you know, just ask me to explain to them and because they were all af afraid of the exam and stuff like that too. So my mom used to say, wait a minute, don't you have to study? I said, I am through helping my friends. Yeah, so, oh yeah. Explaining yeah. it to someone else always, yeah. always helped me. That but helped me she, she had a hard time understanding A number that, of courses. So anyway, so I, I discovered that it was fun. I, I really enjoyed doing that, um, you know, um, answering questions for my friends. And uh, they used to borrow my notebooks. Everything was handwritten, of course. Oh, yeah, right, and yeah. So I said, just... I used to give them, and my mom used to say, what'd you do with the notebooks? I did, you know, this so-and-so took it. I said, we don't want to get it back. I said, no, I'm, I'm okay. So high school was okay. It was, so I enjoyed the teaching, and so I said, this is fun. Um, so I don't okay. want to teach. And I never looked back from that. I really did. I mean, that's the one thing I miss today because I'm not teaching formally. So there is a certain um, enjoyment from teaching. It was, so, it was did, fun. so was there ever, so when I was, when I would talk to students, right, and I, mm. and I just came off a job working with undergrads. So a lot of our students were business school students. <clears throat> so they're in at Ohio State. It's a bachelor of science in business administration. And then you'd specialize accounting, finance, ops, right. uh, operations. So a common complaint of theirs was that in the business school they would have faculty who had gone the traditional route: undergrad, graduate school, maybe a maybe a postdoc if that's field appropriate, and then they ended up in academia. And so they saw it as a credibility issue that they were trying to talk to them about ways to improve a business process 
ways to make decisions on how to finance a long-term project, blah, 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 whatever. Okay. Okay. Having never done it in the quote unquote professional sense. Hmm. Right. So is that something, did that ever come up for you? Was that just not ever a question? Maybe, maybe not something that came up to you. Maybe your students would have talked about it behind your back. I don't know. That, well, that seemed to be a common complaint with the students I saw, but. I would say it, it does come up. So for example, you know, I taught chemical engineering for almost 30 years. Um, and so the question is saying, wait a minute, what do I know about industry? You know, I, I have the real world as it were. The quote unquote real world. Right. Um, I spent one summer at a refinery in, in Bombay or Mumbai as it's called now. You know, but that's nothing. I mean, you know, I just go there in the morning, come home in the evening. But um, so no, I mean, I don't have quote unquote real industrial, real life experience. And uh, I think it would have helped. I, I'm not going to deny that. But the other reality was that I knew I did not have that. So I used to seek out people to come and talk to my class about people who were in the real world. So I said, so my former students or uh, people I knew from local area Huntsville, I said, can you come and talk about um, you know, your plan, or can we have a tour or um, give a guest lecture or something? So I was aware that I had a certain limitation in my understanding of the real world based on my own experience. And I said, I'll invite them over. So I, I invited them over for helping with student projects, for example, and things like that. So yeah, I think it would have helped, but it was not a... It, it, it wasn't as uh, negative as, uh, I, I don't know what the students thought about it, but if they ask me, I'm gonna say, yeah, I don't have it, you know? Um, but we're yeah. here to teach you the fundamentals. And again, one thing I think we've talked about, um, the um, degree is not about teaching them a specific set of skills or a specific in, a training for a specific industry. It's really teaching them the sort of fundamentals. In fact, I think I've, I've, I've used this example maybe with you. Um, you know, how do you teach them to solve 10 problems so that the 11th problem that, you know, I didn't know about or the students didn't know about or nobody knew about, they yep. would be able to solve that. Yeah. And whatever that might be. And so I used to constantly evaluate my lessons, examples and exams, you know, and learn from others. So to keep myself updated. So that I did as best as I could, I including adapting to the computer revolution. Uh, remember I started talking about Apple II for my okay. PhD. Oh yeah, yep. But over time I learned about, um, I, I got an email address which was a bitnet, B-I-T-N-E-T -E address. And then I got a internet email address. Anyway, and then I progressed. When I first came to the University of Alabama Huntsville, um, you know, the browsers had just started showing up in the early 90s. 91, yep. 91, 92. I remember using Netscape and mm -hmm. so forth. But the point was, I took to it. You know, I, I took to it. I learned it. I um, adapted to it. Um, I was, I created the website for the department, the very first website for the department. I created, um, this is, this is interesting, I'll share with you too. Um, even at that time, I was an enthusiast about open source um, software. And there were a lot of things that were available to engineering students 
but they were not easily accessible like today. You know, go to the internet, Google, whatever you can find. Yeah, I can download whatever I want. Yeah, whatever. Now and just, but yeah. they were not that easily available. So I created a project and I got a, um, money for a computer. In those days, it was about $5,000 for a computer that today is, you know, you wouldn't even buy it because it'll be like paperweight. I mean, it is like 300 megs of hard drive or something. And I mean, it is a, but it, but it had a read-writable CD-ROM. That was the key. Which is advanced. Which is advanced at Super that Super advanced for something with a 300 megabyte hard drive. Oh yeah. So I, and so, so I, I, I created this CD project. So I put a whole bunch of these lessons and uh, software on CD and told the students they can have it for free, but they had to give me $4 for the CD because that's what it cost me to buy the CD. Yeah, you got to break even on the on the supply, right? right. So, okay. and and the reason is because in those days people had twenty four hundred baud modem or ninety six hundred baud modem later, so they couldn't download it even if they knew where it was. So my point is that I adapted. So I wrote the website, I created an open source CD project, and then when the internet came along, I said I put everything on my website. I don't need to distribute it anymore. And so over the over years, I have used computer technology as and when it's available and improved what I was doing in my classes. Um, so anyway, so. So, okay, so. So what was everyone else in the department doing? Right, so you said you wrote the website. Right. And this is not meant to, to just, you know, badmouth all your colleagues in the department, many of whom <laughs> no. I, I remember, at least from the early days, right. from the 90s. But. You know, and I ask this because with my limited experience in an academic environment and talking to all the students that we had come through the program and yeah. having been an undergrad once long ago, <laughs> it, you can be hard pressed. Not every faculty member out there is one, adaptable. Right. Uh, and two, not every faculty member out there, not not every person out there, you know, folks who listen to this, folks who know me, would would know would realize probably that the 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 guest lecture idea you readily admitting hey this is a gap in my experience i don't have yeah. industry experience the way this other person might um but was that common like what were your colleagues doing or were you the oddball well i was i was the oddball in many ways in the sense that i was never afraid to say i have no idea let me go learn it up uh, let me learn this and um let me, but the other thing that I was also very, very uh, insistent with is that if I learned something, I used to share it. I said, hey guys, look at this, you know, give away the CD or talk to them. The others were not hostile to the ideas, but they were not as enthusiastic, I would say. I mean, they were not, didn't stop me from doing it. They couldn't anyway, but, but I was just odd man in that time. I said, hey, this will improve what we do for our students. I was always thinking. How do we improve education? How do we improve our students' experience? Um, and I continued that later when the internet was stuff in there. So I, I, I remember, I may mention this to you too, um, uh, as, the inter, as the websites became easily accessible and internet speeds got over. So I had a, a, the most extensive courseware as it is called now on departmental websites. So students could go to that website and download every exam I had ever written in my entire time at the university. I used to post it. Um, I posted 
you know, free books are available. Essentially, I said, you know, the internet is growing like crazy. There are things that my students can benefit from. So I used to say, okay, let's make it available. So I was very active in, in, in forward thinking about that. You know, what, what else could I do? How students could benefit. So, yeah. Um, How would you, so this is something, especially folks who work with me, uh, definitely people who work with me at, at Warren know. Um, preparing for that unknown scenario, for that question number 11 that you cannot right. predict, that the real world is going to create, that no one can script for you. How would you do that? What would you What would you go through? Is it as simple as you would write an exam? You would you would continue to update exam material? Yes. Or you what else What else was that in the academic environment? How do you do that? Well, the first thing is of course exam stuff in there. Um, with with the rare exception, I think maybe one or two exams in my entire twenty seven plus years. Uh, all of my other exams were open book exams. So that's the first thing. So I said, you know, don't need to remember anything uh, with some rare exceptions. So that is one thing they had to think about it. And I also gave away the exams, previous exams. So they used to know, which means I had to come up with new exams, new questions. Every term or every time you taught the course? Every time I taught that class, whatever that class was, I taught multiple classes. But you're asking a different question. That is, um, so I used to think about, so let's to take one example, you know, whether it is, same, I tried with something called mass transfer for many, many years. And so, so when I started teaching mass transfer the first time, I had very few examples from biological sciences. But as time went on, I saw, you know, uh, companies uh, hiring chemical engineers for doing large scale manufacture and purification of biological materials like, you know, antibodies or DNA and things like that. So I started including example problems from biology as part of the more chemical engineering classes because saying, listen guys, the principles are the same, but the problem for which we're gonna, that we're gonna solve it is applying for a completely different uh, situation. So there are examples I used to use like that. So I adapted my examples in class over time. Uh, so that is one. Um, and then, you know, if I read something that could be beneficial to the students, I used to share that in the class uh, examples or something I heard in a meeting or something that way. But it's a very hard problem. I mean, how do you, because you can't anticipate the 11th problem, what should you teach them? And there's always something you're gonna leave out, right? So what do you hope is that you, um, give them enough confidence that they can think it through and then come up with the solution that, you know, on their own somehow. But did your, uh, did your problems always have one solution or was there more than one? You could have more than one different solution. Well, one more solution. Than one is, technically feasible solution. Right. Or no. But there could be multiple approaches to it. So okay. in fact, yeah. I, I often, very often used to see, I've had students used to answer in the most bizarre way possible, but they were right. And I used to say, whoa, I hadn't thought about that. I, I had this one student, I remember from Decatur, who used to be the most bizarre way of answering the questions. And my the first look I said, wait a minute, this can't be right. And they look carefully and says, no, 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 he got it right. <laughs> so, so, which means that he was, he's thinking in, in his own way, which is fine. 
So as you have, okay. So as you evaluate those answers though. Yeah. And I learned from that. Yeah. Well, so I'm trying to, so this is, so I'm trying to figure out how to ask this. We're kind of on a tangent. We're on a tangent now, yeah, but yeah, I know, <laughs> you know, the, the world I come from, the world I spent yeah. thir- almost 13 years, well, eight, nine years operational in when I first started, it, well, it, it is true that when you are 80 feet underground, dealing with problems in the field, dealing with right. airmen, dealing with live weapons, there are right. multiple ways to skin the cat. That's true. absolutely true. Okay. But our world evolved to a place where if you did not skin the cat with the particular blade in the particular <laughs> way with this limb versus the other limb first, it's a problem. It's not a technical violation of any kind, yeah. but I don't like it. And because I'm senior to you, I'm going to somehow find a way to write you up, punish you for it, counsel you for it, make you feel bad about it. So how did you avoid that? Or how, how do you avoid that? That's a very good question. You really, you really have to be open-minded about the possibility that learning can come from anywhere, including your own students. And so if you are, um, if you're blind to the possibility that there are some things that your students can teach you, then that'll be a problem. And I was always open to that saying, okay, well, I don't know. And all of a sudden, um, in fact, I have this example of the student who's now somewhere in Japan I remember, we were, in fact, I remember that example like yesterday. We were doing humidification in a mass transfer class and his name is Jeff Byerly. And Jeff questioned me in class about what I was doing. And I disagreed with him in class. And then I went home and I said, wait a minute, something Jeff said, I need to go back and take a look. And I discovered that I had misled the class in something and I spent day writing a set of detailed notes to explain the problem carefully because Jeff had the courage to say, you know what, I don't understand it or you're doing it wrong. And I learned from it. So the key is leave your ego at the door. You can learn from any source. You can learn from people who are not as educated as you or more educated as you because learning can come, the signals can come from anywhere. And so first thing is humility. As far as that is concerned, you know, um, maybe I, I, um, if you accept the fact that there's things you have no idea, uh, that's to learn. And there, there were a few faculty who really had difficulty with that. I, I never am. It's like, okay, I know some things. And if I'm wrong about it, I'm going to say, heck, that is wrong. So really is, epistemic humility is very critical. Is that an innate, is that an innate characteristic or were you taught that? I don't know if I was taught that or not, but I was always like that. I think I'm, okay, it's, it's, it's hard for me to answer the question because I'm obviously biased about how I'm going to answer it. But my feeling is that uh, I think I've always been like that. I've always learned it. In fact, maybe we'll jump to the uh, sabbatical because in the first time I took a sabbatical at Research Genetics, this is 1999, I again walked into this company, Research Genetics, and I had no idea what they were doing. I, I mean, not really, I mean, a little bit. That is, I was walking into a situation where I was a complete rookie. Remember, I was already a tenured professor, but I was a complete rookie. I said, no problem, I'll sit and talk to anybody and learn something, which I did. Well, so give us, so the 30 yeah. second primer on what Research Genetics did, why you, what the sabbatical was built for, right? So what does that term mean? I think for the most part, folks are gonna know what sabbatical means, but. Right. What, was, what were the sabbatical terms? Why did you choose to take it? What, what did ResGen do 
what were you looking to get out of it? Okay. Well, the sabbatical is, is I don't know what the definition of the term sabbatical is, but it's, um, as far as academics is concerned, it's, um, it's you get, this is one of the best uh, um, features of being a, a faculty uh, member. Um, you are allowed to spend up to a year uh, not doing what do you normally do on a campus, teaching and doing the stuff in there, um, and get partially paid. So in my case, I applied, in fact, I'll back up a little bit. I'd actually applied, and you may not remember this, but we had applied to go to, for, for a Fulbright to Israel. I had a letter from this research guy in uh, Bar-Ilan University, somebody I had met when I was in Cleveland. Um, but the Fulbright didn't happen. There was, there was too much competition. So then I said, you know, I'll spend a year at Research Genetics because I happened to meet Chris Russell, who was working there at that time. So the sabbatical is really about um, taking a pause in the academic stuff to improve yourself, to do something new or use the luxury of time to get better as a faculty member, as a researcher, as a teacher and all that. So that is sort of like, uh, some people think of it like a vacation, it wasn't. It's like yeah. really improving yourself. So I knew research genetics was in the, they were involved in the human genome sequencing project in, in multiple ways of making, you know, kits to locate genes and um, they were doing a whole bunch of really fascinating stuff. And they had, they were making something called microarrays for looking at something called gene expression. And Chris Russell had talked to me about it and I said, hey, um, I'll come and work with you guys on microarrays. And he said, sure. So what did I know about microarrays at that time? Almost nothing. So, so I learned about what that was. I mean, I was just talking to people. I helped with some you know, analyzing data, I mean, you name it. I was sitting on the second floor, um, you know, with a computer reading, talking to people. Just soaking it in. Yeah, soaking it in. And then at that time, I struck up a collaboration with my advisor, at, who was still a rice at that time. And we landed up working on a very interesting project that was later published about a year and a half later. And it's, in fact, it's my, most highly cited paper uh, after that year and, and uh, research. That same so, 99 to 2000, that same year? That year, the work, actually the, the or, work started then, it continued 2000 to 2001 and then 2002. I think the paper was in 2002, I think, I forget. But, okay. so, but it's an opportunity to learn and the university um, didn't pay my whole academic year salary, but I said, that's fine. I'll just go. So you were so you were paid a partial salary. Partial salary. Did research genetics supplement? Did they pay you they anything? Did. Okay. They did. And that was the beautiful thing about it. Essentially, uh, Jim Hudson of research genetics said, "Okay, I'm going to lose about a third of my salary." He said, "Okay, we'll pay you a third. So I didn't lose any money that year because right. I said the stuff. So that was. I mean, it is amazing. It is a great gift because I was going to get paid to learn something new." And stuff, and that also, in a in a strange way, it planted the seed for gene capture that year. Um, because I said, "Wow, this is the powerful techniques people are working on." You know what's what's going on, and so 
So can you, so before, so before we yeah. get gene captures the next yeah. step, but yeah, try to, I am semi-familiar with most of the terms you're using because I've okay. heard them so much, but okay. try to boil down what, what, what did Jim Hudson start the company for? Like what, what is it that they, what, what market are they from a business standpoint, I guess, what is it that they're doing for what market? What are they making? What are they selling? What are they giving to people? And then connect that to the gene capture idea to the business you've got now. Okay. So this will take maybe a little, it's not a short answer, but Jim Hudson started the company Research Genetics because what he saw was that people wanted to get DNA, synthetic DNA. Um, so the, the chemical methods for making synthetic DNA were available, but researchers discovered that it took a long time for them to you know call a company and for them to make the DNA and purify it and send it to them for, for their lab. And Jim, Jim said, wait a minute, uh, I can create a business where I can essentially offer researchers DNA fast. So he bought these several DNA synthesis machines, put in the back of this um, um, hair parlor, essentially. On yeah, I remember Memorial, the original building. Yeah. Memorial Drive, essentially. Oh, yeah. Yep. And he said, and I think he created an 800 number that said, give us a call, we'll send you the DNA. I mean, today nobody, it's, it's, it's you know, nothing shocking about it, but that day is like revolutionary. It's like, oh, you mean you can get a DNA like in a day or two? I said, yeah. Well, so I'm not convinced it might still be shocking to some people. So he, so he mass produced synthetic DNA molecules right. to just ship out to labs to yeah people who wanted them on request. Right. And there's, and there were clearly was a market for that. Exactly. Okay. And then he was also tied into the whole um, field of uh, genetics and sequencing and stuff like that. So he created a bunch of other products that uh, the faculty, the, uh, academic people were wanting and they supplied them. So his company made a, had a huge role in the uh, development of the first human genome sequence itself, you know, where the genes are located and which chromosome and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So he's primarily working with academics, right? Research institutes, laboratories, hospitals. Probably. I don't remember, but uh, they had a standard ad in the back of the science magazine for many, many years. And in the back of science. Okay. So, I mean, it's amazing. So, but they also had okay. a product at that time called a, a microarray. And um, that is essentially used to understand what genes are expressed in say human cells. And that's what I was work, working on. And so to, to go back to the connection with gene capture, um, it's, it's really planted the seed about the fact that, you know, genes and genetics and stuff like that and you know the large-scale manufacture of um, biologicals are going to be important down the road and all that, and so it kind of planted the seed in me to learn about genetics and uh, genomics and things like that when I came back to the campus. Um, and our biotechnology program was, was started. I was the first director of that program, so I um, also started teaching bioinformatics and learned about programming. I mean, there are a whole bunch of those threads I can go down the path. But so the research genetics was a seed, essentially, that started about genetics and genes and programming and bioinformatics. Yeah. Okay, but that's not, 
so that's not the whole story. So, no, you know, clearly we're, we're skipping, ch- right. we're skipping whole chunks of years here, but <laughs> so fast forward to, so the, the time when, and I didn't even realize how old gene capture was right when we were talking yeah. about it right. uh, a couple of weeks back. So, okay. So that's, so that's one seed, but right. kind of fill in the rest of the story now, fill right. in the rest of the color. Right. Where did the gene, ca- where did the idea for the tech come from? And if you can boil way down the tech, like what okay. is it that you do? So, so I, I, you may have heard the story about um, when Athena was born, she was a preemie, if you remember that story. Yep. So this is my half sister. Right. Right. And okay. She was born in 2002. Yep. Um, and um, she was a preemie. And then the very first day they took an x-ray and then the x-ray, the, I remember the neonatologist, I was in the NICU as it is called. And the guy said, well, I think she has pneumonia based on the x-ray. And I said, I don't see it. Of course, I'm not a physician. And he said, yeah, I see there is some shadows and she has pneumonia. So let's give her some antibiotics. Would that be common in a premature, by the way? I just. Yeah, typically. Yes. yes. Okay. That is. Okay. They, so it's. Yeah, it's not uncommon, but they're using an x-ray to determine that at that time. They, they may still do that today. So. It's like, oh no, you know, giving antibiotics to a preemie baby. Even at yeah. that time, you knew that, you know, you destroy the microbiome and so forth. Anyway, so I mean, they did. They gave her antibiotics. And then at that time, they also took a sample of blood from her, one year old baby now. And then they sent the no, blood. One day old. One day old. I'm sorry, one day old. And she was and how they, early? Do you remember? Five weeks, I think. I'm trying to remember. Okay. I keep forgetting some of the details. Anyway, took a sample of blood. Okay, gives us an idea. She was in NICU. Sample of yeah. blood, and then three, about three days later, it came back and said, we couldn't find the pneumonia, the bacterium. So they stopped the antibiotic. So it's like, right. I mean, it, it made me both shocked. It, it shocked me and also made me furious to say, wait a minute, if the bacteria were there at time zero, why is it we couldn't see them except you know using some something like X-ray and not even sure? And then how could you make a mistake like that, giving powerful antibiotics to a preemie child? So I said there must be some other way to do this, you know, whatever. So that sort of propelled my journey towards figuring out a solution that says is it possible to look for bacteria? And of course, viruses are a related problem. And I can talk about that too. They're similar and also different. Um, is there a easier way to detect them? And so again, to make a long story short, we came up with an answer saying we can detect bacteria and viruses very quickly using our gene capture technology. Well, I, so, I mean, the beauty of the podcast, right, is right. We, we can always, we're going to probably have to do a part two to this anyway, but sure. yeah, we've got the time for the long version of the long story. But I think, yeah. I think some people would assume that finding a bacteria, finding back a, a bacterium or a virus right. in blood is not hard and doesn't take three days. What what is it? What well, were we doing? Yeah. Or what, what they the actually method? do is they typically take, let's say in this case, they took Athena's blood and they will essentially try to grow. You assume that the bacterium is there, right? Yeah. And then you make multiple copies of the bacterium so you can then see it on these plates, essentially. If you see it, you're gonna say, aha, it's there. Because yeah, you're, you're using a natural process. You're trying to create a reaction to grow this thing. Right, and that, that takes just, time. 
you can't just look at it under a microscope no. and see things floating around. That's my point. Well, so. unless they're in huge numbers. I okay. mean, if they are in such huge numbers, you can see them in a microscope, then, you know, it's, it's a problem for the patient, really. So, so yeah, they are very, very low concentrations, and it's going to be hard to see unless you grow them. Um, again, long story short, so you have to essentially culture them. That's the gold standard today. I mean, there okay. are other methods too, and I can get into that. And if somebody listening to it, you know, they're going to say, what is he talking about? And Well, yeah, I'm, I'm trying angles. to bring it yeah. down. But, okay, so the process is not as straightforward as it might sound. Right. This may not to go down the, I don't, we don't need to go down the COVID tangent. Maybe that'll be for part two, but okay. maybe this is what contributes to why COVID test takes several days to come back. It's not as easy as simply what I think some people picture. I know what I used to picture was the slide under the microscope and you somehow we've got the technology now to just see the thing floating around. That's not the case. It's probably just me, but. Right. Yeah. We can delve into those, some of those detailed stuff in there. Um, so for example, you know, if you want to go down the COVID tangent, there are these antigen tests, but there are also nucleic acid testing, there are antibody tests and so forth. There are a variety of these things today available. Uh, but the bottom line is it takes time. And then I said, can we do it faster? Which is what we've done at Gene Capture. Again, to jump to the end of the story as it were. So today, for example, in our lab at uh, um, Gene Capture in Alabama, uh, and we have a paper on this too, described out there, um, which uh, I can send you the link to it. Uh, we've been able to detect urinary tract infections within one hour of sample collection. And detecting UTI is still a challenge today for most labs. It takes several days. But if we have a prototype in the lab that we've been used to, we've used to show whether or not somebody has UTI in less than an hour. What's the typical return on a test now, on an approved test now? A couple of days. And there are some okay. other methods using something called PCR that um, will, you know, be a little bit faster. But again, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole right now with the PCR stuff. And the, but yeah. typically UTI will come back in, you know, say two or three days. Okay. So, so just to be explicit, what is that two-day gap by the patient? What can we get out of that? Well, the problem that's is that, treatment. That's right. Yeah. So if if you um, think the patient has UTI, then you know you give some antibiotic or something, and that lab test come back and says, well, you know, it's not UTI or it's not the the drug you've given the patient is not the right drug. Then you stop the drug. In the meantime, the patient has gotten a drug which is wrong. So that's not a good thing. You know, some of these drugs are quite powerful. You don't want to take something that for which you don't have the, that disease or that particular uh, right. bacteria. And their symptoms haven't, haven't abated either. It may not have. Correct. Right. So they're still dealing with it. They're taking the wrong drug. That's a right. super powerful drug you shouldn't be on anyway. Right. Yeah. Okay. So what we're trying to do is to make it rational, you know, detect what the drug is. And again, I'll add that we are also developing a way in which we can detect, we can determine what antibiotic will work best for that patient also. That's another test we're working on. That's slightly behind. That's not as uh, quite ready as the identification methodology is right now, but we're working on that too. So, so tailor... capture, ultimately, we'll tell the uh, physician what the patient has and what antibiotic will work best. Instead of just throwing 
throwing amoxicillin at every whatever infection right. or whatever the standard <laughs> penicillin variant might be. For, Correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, okay. So that's sort of a short gene capture story. <laughs> I mean, there is all kinds of details in there that you know I've skipped, and uh, for a technical person, some of the things I'm I've taken some shortcuts. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know how many other, there, there might be some other folks out there listening who can properly qualify what you've been saying. Um, and I, and I, can, I can do that I as I said, some papers, for... whatever. And before I forget, Arun, I wanted to mention that <clears throat> the Department of Defense has been enormously helpful for us uh, in gene capture. Um, well, that's good. I'll use the opportunity to mention um, we have um, phase one, phase two contracts from DITRA. Defense Threat Reduction Agency. Mm -hmm. And the reason they contacted us was they, you know, you have, you, you probably know this better than I do. There are people being deployed all over the world uh, in remote places and, you know, um, not access to latest technologies and stuff like that. And if a soldier or Marine or somebody falls or an Air Force person falls ill and there's an infection, you need to determine quickly, you know, if, uh, and they had a list of nasty uh, bacteria and viruses that they wanted us to develop tests for. And we have probes for those. Um, you need to be able to do this quickly out in the field. And then if the test comes back and it's uh, sort of uh, concerning to the, um, to the commanding officer of, or if they send the information back somewhere, they said, oh, you see, X and X is really bad, then they can decide to evac the person or whatever, right? That is, you want information about that soldier or airman or marine quickly out in the, in the field with an instrumentation which is portable and, you know, doesn't use a lot of resources and easy Doesn't take to a lot of training to use. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so any med tech, any, anybody who's anybody, right. we'll just trained to, to perform basic field medicine can... So, so DTRA funded us to develop the um, early version of our prototype. And we were able to demonstrate that sample sequence. And again, again, I'm sort of cutting the whole story down. Uh, we have uh, funding from AF Works, A-F-W-E-R-X, I think I mentioned that to you. Mm -hmm. Yep. On uh, user interface for our, for our prototype and uh, to improve, improve the way the prototype is working. And also we're getting funding to help us take our prototype and machine to commercial through the FDA and commercial marketplace and so forth. So the Department of Defense has been extraordinarily helpful in funding some of our work. Of course, we could always use more. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but they have been instrumental. Um, I don't so think there's any undersecretaries who subscribe to this, but it doesn't hurt to try. I don't know. Uh, and I'll also mention <laughs> that we got a, I think DHA's Defense Health Agency, I think it's called. I mean, DHA. Yeah, is that DHA? That might be the new. They were DOD right. is in the middle of consolidating medical treatment. I think. Yeah, I, I should know it. this. It's called DHA. I think it's Defense Health Agency. So we just finished a phase one project with them, and we did something interesting. So they're interested in in they call a wound project. So you know, it's somebody's wounded on the battlefield or out in the middle of nowhere, whatever. And you want to be able to determine quickly, you know, what would work on that patient. And what we were able to show for them was 
these typically wounds have more than one, say, uh, microorganism that could be infecting that person. And we, in the phase one project, we developed a way to monitor, you know, what, um, which antibiotic the mixture will respond to. Um, and we've submitted a phase two um, uh, proposal to help us uh, essentially advance that idea. This is so someone that, infected with more than one correct. strain of something. More than one um, species, one bacteria, for example, say E. coli okay. and something else or whatever. How do you treat them? Um, it's, it's a little more complicated than that. So we, we developed an idea in phase one project that we are, hopefully we'll get the phase two and then we'll go to the next stage. So, so it's been, I mean, so we've had private investors, of course, but also the DOD has been uh, helpful. And um, so, and again, let me sort of summarize by saying a gene capture, what we wanna do is to provide information about infections and antibiotic sensitivities tests quickly so that the healthcare professional, physician, nurses, whoever can make the right decision quickly and not make guesses. Well, make the right decision and make it more quickly than we do now. Correct. That's the whole, you know, elevator pitch. As it so were. how far are we from seeing the instrument in, in the physician's office or in an emergency room in a deployed field hospital? Okay. Um, right. So th th these things the, take a long time, right? But just it, to it does. paint the picture for where you guys right. are, where's the... Um, our hope is that within the next 18 months to less than, less than two years, we'll have a something which will be quote unquote approved by the appropriate agencies, actual box with the disposable cartridge. And then after that, it'll be a question of getting the funding to build multiple copies of the instruments and cartridges in a commercializing. Commercializing will be after about another 18 months to two years, maybe less, hopefully less. So okay, I, wanted, that's still... I wanted yesterday. But... Yeah, but a year and a half to two years from now though, now, okay. now I'm familiar with the history. Most people would not be, but that, that seems, that's on the horizon. Oh yeah, it's, not it's like definitely on the horizon. Time. Because we have so many things that, I mean, <laughs> we have the cartridges that are working right now. We have the, the reader that is working, but they're all in the lab that is in the prototype stuff in there. They're not ready to be sold yet, but we have plans. We have the engineering plans to shrink them to, you know, to make the cartridge and all that. We have talked to different suppliers. We have talked to, so we are working on multiple fronts to make this a reality, not just in the lab as in the prototype machine, but actually out in the real world. To include so production? Coming. Yeah. So you yeah. said you're, you, so there's somebody already working on how to produce these things, how oh, yeah. to produce the instrument. Well, we're designing the uh, thing in such a way that it will be possible to produce it. That is, they, this is a very stuff we design it in such a way that you know we can't take it to a manufacturer. The manufacturer is going to say, "Well, I can't manufacture it uh, because it is too expensive to make it." So we're thinking about what will, it, how do you design it so that the manufacturing process itself would be right, straightforward and not cost you know yeah cost effective thousand dollars a machine or something. It has to be well designed, well thought of, and just correctly designed so that we can make multiple copies easily and reliably and then be able to sell it at a price that people can afford too. I mean, which, you know. well, which means what? So how, how much, and I don't know if you can share this, how much do we think the instrument's going to cost? Well, the actual instrument itself is uh, going to be a few thousand dollars, maybe four or five or maybe less. 
approximately. Okay. It just looked very expensive. The um, cartridge itself, you know, uh, that is used, you know, where you put the sample in to see what you have. The, where you put, is, it's a blood sample, right? It could be blood, it could be saliva, it could be urine. Oh, okay. It could be, uh, it could be wound sample, it could be any sample like that. But that itself is, our target is about what the typical copay is going to be, what people, uh, you know, go for position. For a so cartridge. $20, right. One-time use, right, type of thing? One-time use, yeah, disposable. Yeah. And again, you know, that's our target um, number. So people yeah. will not have to pay too much money to use it. I mean, even if this is, even if the instrument's five grand, right? Right. DOD spends a lot more money on things that <laughs> don't work as long or as often. So, right. okay. So um, we have a target. We want to keep it inexpensive and easy to use. Okay. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to ask this and then, yeah. and then a couple more things to kind of wrap up. Okay. But, but I want to ask this because this was my first question when I first started to learn more about it only really within the last year or so. Okay. Um, and then I read a book last summer mm. that uh, I think I've shared with on, I've shared with folks online and I've talked about maybe in a previous episode. So I'm going to ask this question knowing it's kind of, kind of a sensitive issue, but for those people who might be equating the two examples, Theranos, right? Right. The Theranos story ends right. badly. Right. So right. for those people who don't know, well, I'm, I'm going to ask you to kind of run us through it quickly. So sure. if you can briefly, what is the Theranos story and how is gene capture and yeah. your product? Not that. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is, this has come up several times. Have you gone in front of groups and they've asked the same question? Let me put it this way. Theranos uh, began and ran and then ended as a fraud. That there was nothing real at Theranos. It was all complete smoke and mirrors from the very beginning. They never had their own instrumentation. They never had any technology that they developed. They were using Siemens and other technology. So the first answer to this stuff is, Theranos was a fraud from the very beginning and people, a whole bunch of people were defrauded into thinking that it was the best thing since sliced bread. That's oh, yeah, answer. millions of dollars down the drain into something Billions. that didn't exist. It's a, it's a fraud from the very beginning. But the, but the, so you're, so you're right, right? In the book, Bad Blood, for, if, right. for people listening, if you haven't read it, you should read the book. It's not a very yeah. long book. But to be clear, yes, the technology, they, they never created anything native right. to the company. But is what you guys are doing in real life what they were trying to do? First of all, I don't even know what they were trying to do because they were a fraud from the very beginning, to be honest with you. They were making claims that we can talk about. The claims they were making, they were saying that from a drop of blood, they could say anything and everything about whatever was in the blood and any disease, something like that. Yeah, I think it was going to be but, cholesterol numbers too. It was going to I be glucose. It was going to, right. All your so labs just, and all your stuff is They done. were just going yeah. to get anything, everything that you had and from whatever. So it was a complete fraud from the very beginning. So I don't know what technology that they had and what they actually did, to be honest with you. It's a complete fraud. That's but the you, first thing. But this has come now, up before you said. People have asked you this question before. Right. And the reason is because in, in our particular case, it's simple. Do you want to see the prototype? It's in Huntsville, Alabama. It's working. We published a paper and you can relate the uh, stuff in the paper to what others have done. And you can actually come and see it. It's real. We have the well, patent. You can go back and look at the patents. We have uh, some international patents also. 
So, you know, I just listening to me, you know, people don't have to believe what I'm saying, but if there is somebody out there who wants to actually see what we've actually done and get a proof of it, visit Huntsville, Alabama, it's there. So it's our machine, it's our design, as we have our suppliers, we have done the work, we can tell you the history of where we began, what are some of the things we did. That is, this, everything that I'm telling you right now, is it's supported with actual devices, actual things and stuff in there. With Theranos, there's all smoke and mirrors. So well, the simple way is complete fraud, we are- Okay, that's, the, that's your, yeah, that's the answer. Total bullshit. Total bullshit this is, and fraud. I hope they throw those people in jail and throw away the key, frankly. Well, it cost uh, almost so much. Yeah, I don't think the CEO, she's not in jail, but she's still famous for it. Um, yeah. But now, one of the key signs is probably it's taken you how long? The company's been around how long? More than well, 10 years. Well, it's a good question. They're technically started in 2010, but we really started accelerating maybe 2016 when we had some of the more initial stuff and maybe 2017, I forget the exact dates. So we've been running a lot faster the last maybe five years or so. Right, but you had, I mean, the runway is far longer than, right. than something like a Theranos that I think was trying to get to market inside of a three-year period, maybe something. You get to market without a product, yeah. You read the first couple chapters and their forecasts <laughs> were not, to, to somebody even who has no training in the field whatsoever, I mean, J Jim Mattis was on the board of directors or something too. I mean, well, that's, that's she, true. Was, she was an amazing person to essentially bulldoze and uh, defraud people. It also, in fact, I, I think less of Jim Mattis now. It's like, how in the hell could he be, you know, fooled by complete fraud, essentially? Anyway, and then George Schultz was also on the board, apparently. Anyway, yeah, it there makes some, me angry. There were some well-known names, yeah. It oh, makes yeah. me angry when I think about it because it is such a fraud. I mean, it did everybody a disservice. The, the 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 fraud that they perpetrated on the scientific and the user community. I mean, I can't tell you how angry I get when I think about that. Anyway. Yeah. Well, I think I, I, I think we can hear it. Well, maybe okay. we'll well maybe I'll push that button again in the future. But I just I couldn't resist. First. Yeah. All right. So. Anyway. Um. Okay. So we're getting to. I think we've yeah. been going. It's been about an hour and a half. Um, okay. So let me ask you. This is probably. I'm going to try to segue this as, as best I can. Okay. So the reason why, so I, I, so I brought up your and mom's story. Right. Uh, albeit getting some details wrong, to be clear. Okay. But I, I brought up that story to talk about why I joined the military. Okay. And I, you know, I encouraged in last week's show, I encouraged folks to just ask, instead of saying, hey, thank you for your service. Here's 10% off a chicken sandwich. <laughs> Why did you join? Why did you stay? Why did you do it? Right. And you're going to get into a real conversation with somebody. So I'm curious from your perspective, mm. from an immigrant's right. naturalized citizen's perspective, uh -huh. I guess, what do you, what do you make of the experience and, and what do you, I, this isn't the question I want to ask, but this is the, this is the best one I can come up with in this moment okay. right now. How do you, how do you approach holidays like Memorial Day or conversations like the one we've been having about, um, well, the conversation we have about how long we've been in Afghanistan, in Iraq, um, whether intervention in Syria, in Libya, all, all these activities that we take, right? When we, when we get to things like Memorial Day and this show, by the time it releases, right. 
um, it's going to be the Thursday after Memorial Day. So okay. everybody will have started summer officially and they'll be back to work and doing, doing right, right. whatever. Memorial Day was designed, it goes all the way back to Civil War, right. and it's really designed to honor the fallen. Veterans right. Day is meant to recognize anybody who has served in uniform. Right. You know, but just from, a, from, a, from someone who also, you didn't, mom came to the country pretty young as a child. Right. You came to this country a fully sentient adult. Right. So now having naturalized, having been a U.S. citizen all this time, right. having lived the life you've lived, having done the things you've done, yeah. what's, your, what, what's your take on what life in this country is like and what these types of holidays mean and what the discourse is like, you know, um, by somebody who was born and bred here and, you know, maybe hasn't traveled as much? You know, we might, we might need a, a separate session for all of that. I so, have the, yeah, um, I have that habit. But but the bottom line is uh, I, I can tell you that I feel extraordinarily fortunate and blessed to be in the United States. In my mind, this is the best country on earth, bar none. And, and of course, I've, I was born in India, I grew up in India, and I've traveled to some other parts of the world. And bar none, this, and this is as close to paradise as it comes, the United States I'm talking about. Now, um, does that mean that I think the United States is perfect? Of course not. But, but compared to just about any other country, any other Western country too, the United States is by far the best and has come so close to paradise for a lot of reasons. One is because, you know, it is very welcoming to me as a graduate student and in spite of the difficulties your mom had welcoming to immigrants, there's no other country on earth that is as open to new people new ideas, you know, and stuff where you, for the most part, with some rare exception, you're treated as an individual. And, and <clears throat> you can be anything. I mean, what's the army say? Be anything you want. Be, be all anything, you can be. Be whatever you can be. Absolutely. Unlike other countries, which are, which are even the UK, for example, I mean, um, you're, Pedigree and all that will matter a whole lot in the UK and in India and stuff like that. Not so the United States. I mean, you can be as great as you want. You can you know, fool around if you want or whatever. The opportunities are literally unlimitless in terms of what you can do if you decide to do them. Now, again, uh, I'm speaking like a, some Pollyanna. I'm not. I recognize that there are some problems in the United States also. But again, I mean, as a com compared to other countries, this is paradise. I mean, you know, there is a, um, so I follow a lot of writers in the United States and elsewhere and the stuff in there. And when I see some of the complaints about some of the, some of the things in the United States, I wonder if they know what country they're living in. I mean, I'll be the first to criticize the United States for different stuff, including, as you mentioned about, you know, getting into wars in other countries and essentially being warmongers because of the military industrial complex, as Eisenhower said, right? Yeah, uh, oh, yeah. there are some crazy politicians. Don't even get me started on politicians. They, 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 that's definitely a different, that's a different show a entirely. Different stuff in the, no, we're not so, and and the, and the politicians in the United States are as bad or worse than politicians in India, anywhere else. Yeah, absolutely. But we have a system that is so big and so welcoming for the most part that even the worst politicians in Washington, D.C. are going to have difficulty destroying the very thing we have in the country is my point. I mean, okay, so, yeah, I mean, I, I can't imagine living anywhere else. 
just cannot. Um, and this is about education. This is about living day to day. I mean, you name it. Uh, it just so I, as I said, I can talk. You can ask me questions. We can have a separate session. In fact, maybe we shared about yeah. Maybe we'll we'll do part two and we'll talk about this. My own uh, experiences and stuff like that. I mean, it's an astonishing country that treats everybody as individuals. And the change I've seen since '79 when I came to today, it's much, much, much better. It's not as bad as people are making it out to be. In fact, I'll tell you what. Um, people should simply stop listening to the mainstream media all completely because they, they have such a negative uh, impression about many of the United States. It's like, I don't know what country they're talking about, frankly. I mean, it's just not. So anyway, so bottom line is that I'm just thrilled and blessed that I'm here. I mean, it's, it's just hard for me to express how grateful I am. And so I try to do the best I can today. So today my mission is gene capture and say, you know, what could I do to provide the diagnostics and stuff? And again, that's a journey. I mean, so many people have helped us in gene capture, funding us. I'm not even just talking Jim Hudson and Lonnie McMillan, all the investors in the company. I mean, well, Lonnie McMillan gave me a, a investment in our company and we didn't even have a bank account at that time. He handed me a check for a and I, I may have told the story. And he had me the, me the check without even asking me in detail about what we want to do. I mean, I've had people like that in the United States. Yeah, they're just giving you money because they trust you. Yeah. And even as a director of the biotech program on the campus, Jim Hudson hands me a check for, I mean, so anyway, it's just, I've been incredibly lucky and, and blessed. And the, good, and the amazing thing about this stuff is I don't think I'm unique about that. Bunch See, but of that's people, that would yeah. be the counter argument, right? As well, good for you, but no, it's not. There's it's many not more people who do I not think, have that. I experience. think if you talk to most immigrants, for example, who've been whether it is first generation like me or second generation, for the most part, immigrants. Why do you think the people want to come to the United? States? They're beating on the door, coming, you know, coming through boats or you know. South from South America, from Mexico, from all over the on foot because, walking yeah. because they know. So, and I'm not reading the news to figure out why the United States is good. I'm trying to. You can see why the United States is wonderful because you see people want to come here. I mean, they die trying to get here. I mean, what else do you need to know? Yeah, people want to come here. In spite, I mean, it's just astonishing. So I'm, I'm just. Anyway, we, we can talk um, about some of the other specific issues and I can tell you my criticisms of some of the things and what we need to do to improve what we're doing in the United States, but uh, I can't imagine anywhere else. <laughs> I know, I, I, it's, it's, it's it, yeah. No, I mean, that's a, I mean, that's, that's, yeah. That's your answer and I think that's a, that's a good yeah. place. That is a good place and a good I mean, to end on. Look at you where you are, even with the Air Force and on spot all the difficulties you had with, all the stuff in there and what you guys are doing and Maggie and the kids and stuff. I mean, you know, it's, um, yeah. Um, I, I'm, I, I don't know. I, I can't speak any more highly than, than I can. And uh, I get irritated when people are complaining about things that um, I, I even make a comment, you know, if you, if you're complaining about X, Y, or Z, you know, just take a trap, go anywhere outside the United yeah. States. I don't even care. Go to Canada. 
go to the UK, go to anywhere else. And you'll come back and think, thank goodness I'm back here. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, anyway. Well, I, I mean, the Air Force gave me a ton of opportunities. I got very lucky and now I'm yeah. doing a job, what, not even closely related to what I used to do. And that's, I mean, that's I totally mean, fine. I could have done really whatever I wanted, which is, as I've said before, liberating and also incredibly scary. But No, it's just at Gene Captive, we have so many people from um, so many different types of people, you know, different, uh, maybe even not first generation, but second generation immigrants. We have a person from Canada. We have people connected with Mexico. We have people connected from Alabama, of course, and all that. So it's, you really, I think the simple, to me, the simple fact is people just beating down our doors to come in and live in the United States. I mean, nothing else. The fact that we're still a human magnet, people just want to come here. And I don't care what you hear from governments and stuff like that. The reality is that because people want to come here, it should tell us that we have something amazing. We just do. So I'm thrilled, grateful. So I try to do the best I can even today, you know. So my objective with Gene Capture is, you know, get that machine, you know, and uh, make it work and, and then I'll be happy. I know it's going to happen. It's absolutely going to yeah. happen. I'm oh, yeah. Absolutely I, bet it does. I bet it will. So okay. anyway, there are many, many things you can cover. I mean, it's, and if you think about specifics, I'm happy to do this again. Yeah. Oh yeah. We'll absolutely do it again. Um, yeah. In the meantime, I really yeah. appreciate it. We've been going close yeah. to two hours and <laughs> no I'm sure you've got other things to do, but. Um, if you yeah. get questions from anybody, yeah, forward them. I'm happy to help you answer if they're specifically directed to me, for example, or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. Yep. The, the call for feedback is always open. Uh, Arun at enableword.com. And everybody will hear that again in the outro. So I say it a couple of times for any feedback. And I do get emails from time to time, which is cool. But yeah, anything that's directed yeah, toward you, I'll send your way. Absolutely. And then if you can send me the link to that paper, I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mentioned I'll, it at one point. I'm going to start to compile notes because in a lot of for most of these conversations, things come up and I, I have not been good about show notes the way a lot of folks are. So I'm going to, I'm going to develop a place to put that stuff. That way, if people are interested, they can actually go find it because the, the app description is not the place for that stuff. The uh, PDF I sent you, you can put a link to that. Uh, it's the yep. capture story. I'll, I'll add and, that. And uh, there will be, a, give me a day or so, I'll collect some stuff and email that to you. Yeah, that's fine. And, 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 and the video, I think the video media you sent me a while back. Um, I forgot about that. Are those yeah. releasable? I'll, I'll check with you again. I'll, we'll talk off air about it. I forgot it. about that. but And, yeah, and I can sure, put all yeah. that info and link to the website and all that kind of stuff. Okay. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks yeah. again. Sure. We'll talk Good soon. Good luck with the kids. Uh, say hi. Hopefully they're asleep by now. <laughs> God, I hope they're asleep by now. Yeah. It's almost nine o'clock on the East Coast. So <laughs> they better I, be asleep. Bedtime is 6.30 and 7 o'clock. So if they're not asleep, then it's just going to be a nightmare. <laughs> Okay. Uh, so my dad has left the building, as it were. And um, so I know the show has already gone long. It's, uh, I'm going to hear it from Maggie, too. Uh, we're going to get close to two hours. We're going to rival Chelsea's episode. Um, there's a lot there. Uh, and so, and I'm not going to attempt to unpack it all. You know, I usually talk for a few minutes after the interview, after the conversation and, and kind of go through some thoughts. But of course, 
this conversation was a good bit more personal for me. Um, and selfishly, some of it was purely fact finding for me. You know, I learned things about my family history, my parents' history that I either didn't know or thought I knew and got wrong. Um, and uh, I, I was using it as a chance to build some more context behind my story, their story, behind the story I told in last week's episode and number 10. Um, and really just wanted to build more context behind what life was like for, you know, for two, in his case, for an immigrant naturalized citizen um, coming from a, you know, a, a unique background into graduate school, moving around a couple times, making a life in a, a pretty advanced field in an advanced scientific field as a teacher. Um, I don't know. There's a lot there. And I'm just, I'm, I'm now I'm just kind of rambling and making things up. So I'm going to, I'm going to spare you any additional editorial. Uh, so I will say, you know, that the last segment, also that last question I asked, um, yes, it, it delves into some of the political, which I have not really done up to this point. The last question as a project and as a podcast uh, is about building better leaders to build better futures. I haven't lost sight of that. That is still the core mission. But as the title implies, right, questions and difficult questions and, well, difficult questions are, are important. They're critical, not just to our understanding, but to our ability to progress, to evolve. If we're not willing to ask tough questions, we sure as hell aren't going to get the answers we need uh, to do better. But I've also been fascinated with the idea that somehow our inquiry ends. Somehow you get to a place or a point where you've learned all you can learn. You've reached some final end goal or end state you have arrived. And certainly the books that I've been reading lately, the podcasts I've been listening to, a lot of the material I've been exposed to trying to make sense of this career transition I've been in the middle of, of the few common themes, one that continues to stick out is there is no such thing as an end. There is no finish line. Except for the day we die, except for the day we pass from this earth, there is no finish line. So the question is, what do you intend to do with all of the time in between now and the day you leave this earth? Be because there is no such thing. If it's true, there is no such thing as making it. There is no such thing as having it all or have, of achieving the thing, the goal, because no matter what you achieve, there's going to be another one beyond that. If that's the case, then... What do you do with that? What do you do about it? Can you do more than you're doing now for yourself, for your family, for the people around you? My dad, we didn't really get into the retirement piece and I had a whole slew of, um, well, I had a, a different subset of questions in my head to talk about the university and academia and, and why he left. And so I, I'm not going to tell that story. I'm not going to talk to that now, except to say he retired after almost 30 years and could have 
just enjoyed what we think of as retirement, I think, right? Hanging out at home, maybe picking up part-time work, hanging with family, maybe traveling a bit. He doesn't play golf, so that's not going to be a thing, right? But in, in retirement, quote unquote, he's chief technology officer for a company that is a, that is a biotech startup that takes a lot of effort, a lot of investment in mental energy, physical energy, and money to get moving a piece of technology that can be revolutionary for healthcare. But in the meantime, this thing is 10, 12 years in the making, which is life in entrepreneurship, which is life in biotechnology, which is life in startup world, in the tech world. It takes a long time to come up with some of these ideas and then to create them in their physical form, demonstrate their capability, right? Eventually find someone who is willing to uh, to fund it, to buy it, to use it. So he said it best himself, and I don't want to try to talk over his words at the end. He continues to, to work and continues to try to grow. And to be honest, something else that this conversation gave me is a, is a much better look and perspective into what it is that makes him tick. And so for those of you who know me very well, um, you know that the, the relationship I have with my father is not all sunshine and rainbows. It's gone up and down over time. But one of the things I have not done well is understand his perspective, his position, what he's been struggling with. I have kept myself at a distance on purpose many times for reasons I won't go into now. Um, but as I've learned with not just in this relationship, but in others, that's usually a mistake. And so this conversation gave me a great opportunity to, to dig into some things that I've always been curious about or that I am curious about. Um, hopefully it was enjoyable to you. Hopefully you learned something from it. You know, to, to, to close the loop between last week's episode and this week, between number 10 and number 11, I am incredibly blessed and incredibly lucky. And Nothing that he said, nothing that I have said is meant to diminish the real pain that a lot of our fellow Americans and a lot of people feel on a daily basis. But to my father's point and to the argument that many people make, right, we have to evaluate every individual experience uniquely and every individual uniquely. And so for me, having having the, the luck and the blessing of being somewhat traveled, right? I was able to travel with my parents to different places. I've been to India three times. Um, I've seen other parts in the world. From a very early age, my parents helped demonstrate to me what the United States meant to them. So they were never the type for brainwashing or indoctrination, right? To be clear, I don't remember a whole lot of this is why the United States is awesome. This is why you love this country. This is why you're going to join the military. Certainly, I didn't get any of that. But it became evident to me over time what was important to my parents. Education was absolutely important. You, you probably have an idea of why now. Um, education was important. Exercising your own decision-making was important. Having a reason for the things you did was important. Making a good argument was important. Those are all things we can do on a daily basis here. For better or worse, we have the freedom to do it. 
And we have the freedom to try and make an argument and take a stand, whether it works or not. So gives me a lot to think about. Hopefully it gave you a lot to think about. I'm going to end it there uh, because I'm rambling yet again. I've acknowledged that a couple of times and I still haven't shut up. So thank you for listening. That was episode number 11. Uh, I am grateful to my dad for hanging out with me for a couple of hours on a Friday evening, which is when we're recording. So I do my best to make these things all sound timely, but um, we are in fact recording on the Friday prior. So by the time you hear this, you know, it'll be six days in the future, but I'm grateful to him for hanging out with me. Uh, We probably will do a part two in the future to talk about some other things. In the meantime, you know, I know he offered it on the, uh, during the recording. So I'll say it again for anybody who has questions, right? I I don't know that I'm talking to a lot of people that are working in this space, but I don't want to make any assumptions. Um, You know, there, there were a lot of technical things he threw into the story as time went on, as the conversation went on. If you're curious about anything, he is more than open to answering any question from anyone. Send them all to me, A-R-U-N at enabledword.com. Hit me up. If you've just got feedback, if there's something you liked, something you hated, something that didn't make sense, format of the show, if you've got anything that you would like to see improved, um, please send it my way. If you're still listening at this point, thank you. Thank you. From the bottom of my heart, I, I appreciate each and every one of you. Whether you're giving this show a shot for the first time or if you've been listening since the beginning, this project's not very old, but I will tell you I'm excited for where it's headed. I've got some plans and I've got some ideas that I'm just now starting to work on. Um, I'm shifting focus a little bit. Maybe I'll be able to explain what that means here in the near future. But in the meantime, just know the last question will continue. I'm not ending the show anytime soon. Um, If anything, I want to do more with it. And I want to make it mean something more. And I want to maybe take a little bit more risk than I've been, than I have been up to this point. In any case, uh, that's going to be it for this week. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. If the conversations we're having are useful to you, are of value to you, if you're learning something from them, taking something from them, from them share them with a friend, share them with a family member. And don't forget, no matter how hard the day gets, no matter how hard the day has been, no matter how hard you think tomorrow will be. Take a step outside, take a breath of fresh air, and then turn to that loved one. Share the show, first off. Second, give them a hug and let them know how important they are to you. And then go out there, and with every day you've got until the day you leave this earth, lead well. We'll talk to you soon.